0: at a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and took these 95 statements that he wanted to debate, and nailed them to this door, and without even realizing it, this was a normal practice, this wasn't out of the ordinary for people to do, and and without realizing it, he sparked something, and, and a controversy started, and out of that controversy came a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, So what had happened was, for a long time, the gospel had been hidden or masked by Roman Catholic theology and Roman Catholic doctrine. And what was happening, what was masked, was the idea that we don't become acceptable to God by our own efforts. We are acceptable to God because he loves us. And after uh, Martin Luther nailed these 95 theses on October 31st of 1517, they started getting circulated all throughout the country. It was originally written in Latin, and they were translated into German and uh, printed all over the country. And people started talking about this. And uh, Martin Luther was part of this uh, order of monks called the Augustinian Order. The reason he went into that is because it was the most rigorous of all mona- or monastic orders. So what, what I mean by that is, it was the hardest to be an Augustinian monk. There was a lot of devotion, a lot of piety that went into it. And so he wanted to be in the most difficult monastery because he thought by doing the most difficult things, by living the most uh, religiously vigorous life, he would be able to be more acceptable to God. And the leader of this monastic order uh, called together a meeting of the leaders of the uh, Augustinian order in April of 1518. Just a few months after Luther had nailed his 95 Theses. And this became the, um, the, known as the Heidelberg Disputation. It's not as well known as the the 95 theses of Luther. Everybody's pretty familiar with that. But when they came to Heidelberg, he wrote uh, 28 theological theses that were to be discussed. And and the 28th one is the one that I want to talk to you about this morning. The 28th theses of the Heidelberg Disputation says this. You're going to have to think about this. This is not an easy sentence. You're going to have to think about it, but once you think about it and once it clicks, it's an absolutely beautiful ah. and oh. profound sentence because the implications that this has for us now, today, in the 21st century in rural Nebraska are just mind-blowing. Okay, listen, Listen carefully. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. This is what Martin Luther said in Thesis 28 of the Heidelberg Disputation. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which pleases it. The love of man comes into being through that which pleases it. And we're gonna unpack that sentence, but here's my question. My question, as I read that, I thought about, okay, that sounds good. Is that biblical? Is there anything in the Bible that that indicates that that's a true statement? And I think there is. So uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter five. Uh, I've been preaching through Romans at our church, and I discovered this as I was preaching through Romans chapter five, in a new way after having read the Highberg Disputation. um, Luther helped me to see something in the Bible that I think all of us need to not only see and understand with our brains, but but feel, right? Like believe, have, have this deep conviction of. So Romans 8, look at verses 6 through 11. Romans 8, 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Disputation, pieces twenty-eight, and let's work backwards in it. Okay, let's start with the last sentence of that, uh, of that, um, or the last part of that sentence that Luther written. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Basically, what he's saying is, if you consider how human love works. Human love is a reaction to attraction. We see beauty, and when we see beauty, we respond in love. Okay, so we can we can use a lot of different illustrations about this. But if, if you uh, if you watch something tremendous, right, Like football, right? You watch an amazing play in football. And, and you see an incredibly talented football player that plays with a beauty, of perfection, a excellence, you think, man, I, I, love, I love watching that guy play. Okay? Now, here's the question. Do you love watching the person play that doesn't play with beauty, with excellence, with some degree of perfection? Or you can put it another way, we see art. You look at a fantastic piece of architecture, and, and what you see is the beauty, and the beauty causes you to love it. Maybe you've heard uh, your parents talk, and your dad, or oh, dad, we'll just go with your dad, uh, is telling you about how uh, he met your mom, and, and he says, man, I, I saw her, she was, she was just the most lovely person I've ever seen in my life. And I wanted to take her out on a date. That's how human love works. Human love is a reaction to beauty. We see beauty and we respond in love. So when we think about human love, human love is a response to beauty. But divine love doesn't work that way. Divine love works totally the opposite. Divine love is an action that causes the response of beauty. So God does not look out among his creation, among his people, and look for beauty and then decide to love that. God looks out among his people, among creation, and finds morally ugly people and sets his love upon them. And in that loving of them, they are changed and transformed to become beautiful. That's what they saying. So the last part, the love of man, comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Look at verse 7 of Romans 8. Paul says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Really what he's saying is, no one dies for evil people. No one dies for morally ugly people. It's hard to find somebody that's willing to lay down their life for a morally ugly person. Let me ask you this, we, we live in a post 9-11 culture here, so all of us are very familiar with terrorism and uh, Islam and the, uh, the global war on terror and all of that. You guys have all grown up, for most of you probably, in a world that you have not known, a time when we were not at war with terrorism. Would you die for an Osama bin Laden? Would you voluntarily go and lay down your life for an Osama bin Laden? No. No. Most people wouldn't because the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. We see moral beauty. We see excellence. We see loveliness. And we respond in love. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 7. No one dies for evil people. No one dies for morally corrupt, morally ugly people like you and me right now maybe you need to establish that right now when, when we're talking about morally ugly morally corrupt people we're talking about people like you and I We're not talking about the other people I'm not, I'm not talking about the people that, that that go to public school or the people that don't have a Christian family. I'm talking about people like you and me who live in a church environment. I'm talking about people like you and me who live in Christian homes, who read the Bible, who pray. Do you believe that? Or do you think that, man, I've got some beauty to me? I do all the right things, God. I'm, I'm pretty attractive. I mean, after all, I've never killed anybody. I've never um, gone and robbed a store. Sure, I've cheated occasionally, or sure, I've lied to my parents, or haven't honored them the way I should. Sure, I've sort of like stabbed that person in the back the other day, or uh, gossiped about so-and-so, but those are, I mean, those are like really tiny little things, right? I'm still basically a good person. Romans 8.7, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. In other words, the love of man comes into being through that which pleases it. If I see somebody that's good, if I see somebody that's righteous, yeah, I might die for that person. But Paul's setting up a contrast here. He's saying, he's already established in Romans chapter 3 that no one is righteous. No one. Not you, not me, nobody. And he says that, yeah, I could maybe find somebody that would die for a righteous person, but it'd be hard. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, think that we can become morally lovely on our own. We can clean ourselves up. Um, and that's what the Roman Catholic Church was encouraging in Martin Luther. Martin Luther joined this difficult monastic order in an effort to clean himself up morally, to make himself lovely before God. Listen to a quote about Luther in the monastery. In the monastery, Luther was driven to find acceptance with God through works. He wrote, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing So, in other words, voluntarily sleeping alone on a a stone floor without a blanket in the middle of winter. Freezing himself. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? In other words, he did it so that God would look at him and say, well done, Martin, I'm pretty impressed. That's pretty good. He said, I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. Elsewhere, he recalled, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fasting, vigils, prayers, and other rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Elsewhere, Luther said, if ever a monk was saved by monkery, it would have been me. He was devout. He did all the right stuff. He performed and he was trying to make himself lovely before God. But what he came to discover was that's not how God's love works. God's love is not a reaction to beauty. God's love is not like human love. God's love gets set on someone, and they become beautiful. His love is set on ugliness and turns ugliness to beauty. Look at Romans... 8, 6 says for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Catch that? Where are you in this text? What two words in this text describe you and me? Weak and ungodly. That's not beauty. That's ugly. For the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, in while we were still weak, in that while we were still ungodly, Christ died for us. See what Paul's saying there? He said in verse 7 that no one dies for evil people. And then in verse 8, he says, but Jesus dies for evil people. Or, to use Martin Luther's words in verse 7, the love of man looks for loveliness and then loves it. The love of man comes into being through that which pleases it. Verse 7. And then in verse 8... The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to us. You see that in verse 8? God shows his love for us. Do you see the contrast between verse 7 and verse 8? You and I would scarcely die for a righteous person. We might consider dying for a good person, but we wouldn't die for a weak or ungodly person. But Christ... Sets his love upon us and demonstrates that in that while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, morally ugly people, Christ came and died for those people. Why? Because he loved. Do you see how divine love is different than human love? If human love is a reaction to beauty, human love is a reaction to attraction, divine love finds ugliness, decides to love it, and that loving of the ugliness produces beauty. Which means that you and I are not morally beautiful on our own. We become morally beautiful because of Christ. You don't get to clean yourself up and present yourself as if you're flexing in a muscle competition before the judges. Like, like, you see that? Like, look at this pose. You see how I'm fighting sin? You see how I'm handling this? You see how I'm managing this? You see how, how well I'm doing, God, like Martin Luther was doing? So what changed for him? What changed for him was he discovered this. He discovered that We're counted as righteous before God. We're not righteous in and of ourselves like the Roman Catholic Church thought. We are counted righteous before God when we trust in Jesus Christ because in trusting in Jesus Christ, our sin, our unloveliness is taken and paid for by Christ and His perfection, His beauty is counted as ours. There's nothing in Romans uh, 5 about your performance. There's nothing in Romans 5 about your religious stamina. You know how we tend to measure moral beauty? We measure it in relation to other people. We tend to say, well, at least I'm not as bad as this person. Right? Or at least I haven't done that. Moral beauty has a standard. You know what that standard is? The standard is absolute perfection. That's moral beauty. Moral beauty is only found in God. And so while we seek to rationalize it and and make it somehow uh, about us, moral beauty is only found in God and therefore only God can give moral beauty. You can't just clean yourself up and expect everything to be okay. has said this: rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. You see see what's going on there? See, one causes the other? Either we love like humans and the attractiveness causes us to react in love or, as we're talking about with divine love, divine love results in attractiveness. For this reason, the love of man avoids sinners and all evil persons. Thus Christ says, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is the love of the cross, born of the cross, which turns in the direction of where it does not find good, which it may enjoy, but where it may confer good upon bad and needy people. God does not choose the lovely. He loves the chosen. He does not look around for moral beauty and moral perfection and then applaud you And reward you for your own effort. He sets His love upon us, and in setting His love upon us, we are born again, we respond in faith, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account, and He changes us from the inside out. Like this week, I I want you to do this. This week, go and read Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is a great text, and you've got to read it with some gusto, right? You can't just, like, read it as if you're reading a textbook. Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. These are the people that were externally religious and internally ugly. It's particular, read Matthew twenty-three twenty-five. Okay, I want you to read the whole chapter this week. But imagine what this is right. Like Christ is talking to the Pharisees, the religious people. He's not just like muttering this to them. He's kind of yelling at them. So read it like that, right? You see these exclamation marks in there? Read the exclamation marks. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs. I think about it. What is a whitewashed tomb? It's something that looks good outside and inside is ugly. Which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within, you're hypocrites and lawless. Like the whole chapter is just like He's scathing assaults on people that play the religion without loving the object or the focus. So here's what this means for us. This means that God sees all of our ugliness. Like you realize that. You're not hiding anything from God. He made you. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows those deep down things that you suppress, that you don't let come out of your mouth maybe, but that you think and you feel. He knows all of those things. He knows every aspect of who you are. And if you are in Christ, He still loves you. In spite of all of that, in other words, like in Romans eight one says, "There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." In spite of your moral ugliness, but He doesn't. His love doesn't leave you morally ugly. It transforms you. It changes you. It does something within you. So when Christ pays for our sin, He provides us with righteousness. He brings us to the Father and the evidence that you are loved is not how good you are at cleaning yourself up, but your faith in Christ and love for God. John saying? he says, we love because he first loved us. And so his love transforms and enables us to love God and love others. You don't love God on your own. You're an enemy to God. And when God's love collides with your rebellion, his love overcomes your rebellion and produces in you a love for God and a love for others. He starts inside. He doesn't just fix the outside manifestations. He changes your desires, your affections, your, your um, inclinations. He changes what you love and how you love. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Could tribulation or distress or persecution and nakedness or famine or sword? And it is written, we are like sheep to be slaughtered. We are being killed all the day long. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that either death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things past, nor things present, nor things future, nor anything else in all the creation, including you, and including your sin, including your mess up, is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, the reason for that is because the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to us. And the love of God is demonstrated at the cross, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And through faith in Christ, our sin is removed, His righteousness provided, and we are brought before the Father as children who are loved unconditionally, and who are changed because we're loved. Jesus said this: if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. That's a huge difference. And when he says, if, if he said, if you keep my commandments, then I will love you, what has happened is we've just reverted back to the Roman Catholic theology. We've reverted back to Luther before he had his tower experience. We've reverted back to, if I perform, then I earn love. If I perform, I'm morally beautiful, and therefore I am loved because I'm morally beautiful. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's saying that the evidence that you have been changed by God's love the evidence that you are loved and that you love God is that you respond by honoring God with your life, by keeping his commandments, not because they're burdensome, not because you're trying to earn something, not because you're you're trying to merit something. Think about it. You obeying your parents does not make you any more their child than you than you are if you disobey. I'm a parent, like my kid cannot separate herself from me as my child. She can disobey, yes that does not make her less of my child. If we love God, we keep his commandments from a heart that wants to honor and exalt and praise and worship God, out of a heart that trusts and acknowledges God and his wisdom and his ways. So what are some ways that we try to work, that we try to earn, that we try to accomplish a moral makeover, very easy to think that the gospel and salvation is a simple transaction where if i perform then god responds in he owes me that's not the gospel the gospel is though i can't perform and he owes me absolutely nothing he has freely given me everything in jesus christ through faith in christ i'm reconciled to him and relate to him now as a child relates to a father And because he has loved me, his love is making me morally beautiful. It's conforming me to the image of Christ from the inside out. And I have absolute confidence now that what Paul said in Romans 8 is true. Nothing can separate me from the love of God because that love does not depend on my performance. It depends on just the simple fact that God loves me. So... Our love for God then is the wellspring of our obedience to God. Close with this. If my child, Finley's my oldest and she's three, right, we work on things like cleaning up. Cleaning up the, her toys. that are strewn all over. I mean, it looks like somebody dropped a grenade in her toy box and it just exploded everywhere. Toys everywhere. So every night before bed, we, we clean up. That's what we do. And he's going to say, Finley, time to clean up your toys. Pick up all of your books. Yeah. And she goes around and she starts picking up her books. When when she gets done, is she doing that and thinking, oh, man, I did a pretty good job picking up those books. Dad's going to love me now. Or is she so secure in the fact that I love her that even when she misses a book or two, she has no doubt that when she goes to bed, I'm her dad. I'm for her. And I love her. And is her obedience to me an overflow of her love for me? Or is it trying to earn my love? You, You won't understand this until you have kids, but a child trying to earn your love is the greatest insult to your love that you can possibly imagine. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being Do that which is pleasing to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we think about this, as we consider these words in Romans 5, as we consider what Martin Luther said, we ask, is it true? We weigh it against Scripture. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of areas where we are Trying to earn your acceptance, your love, trying to earn your pleasure in us apart from Jesus Christ. Where we're trying to perform on our own, where we're trying to muster up our own beauty so that you will love us. Father, for those that, that are here, that maybe stand and look in the mirror and they either see themselves in relation to others, in relationship to others and think they're not pretty good, or see themselves until we see all of the moral ugliness that's there and despair. Father, I pray that we would throw down the mirror and look to Christ. Thank you for providing us with righteousness and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Thank you that your love does not look for beauty and then respond in love, but your love loves and creates beauty. I pray that you would do a work in each of us, that you would give us either assurance or conviction, whatever is needed. I ask you to do that for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.